Who is Sajid Javid and how will he manage the country's health? Well, there are two big issues or issues that fall into two big categories when it comes to the responsibilities that will fall to the new health secretary. The first is obviously the pandemic. How will he manage coronavirus? And the second is everything else. So let's talk about the pandemic first. Now, as we've discussed over the past year and a half, a big divide in Westminster when it comes to COVID-19 is whether or not MPs and politicians are doves or hawks. Now, if you're a dove, what you believe is that health should take priority over the economy. You're willing to bring in restrictions earlier rather than later. And you never wanted to I suppose, run the economy hot, which essentially means you know, have a bit of a herd immunity strategy. The hawks are the opposite of the doves, clearly. So they're like, let's avoid restrictions. Let's avoid lockdowns at all costs. We should just treat this a bit more like the flu. We should balance out these different interests. Now, I've often critiqued that dichotomy on this show before. But here, um, for now, let's just use this framework because it is one that exists among MPs. Now, on this spectrum, Matt Hancock was a dove. Um, he was someone who was often, as health secretary, pushing for restrictions to come earlier rather than later against people like Rishi Sunak, against people like Boris Johnson. According to the reports in the newspapers these past two days, Javid is very much a hawk. So Matt Hancock has been replaced by someone who is much less keen on restrictions or much less willing to impose restrictions than Matt Hancock was. Um, in the eye, Katie Balls, who is well connected in Tory circles, suggested that with Hancock abandoned, Sajid Javid is likely to lead the government on a less cautious pandemic route. In that article, she says that on being appointed to the role, Javid said his most immediate priority would be to return to normal as quickly as possible. In previous comments, Javid has sided with the cabinet hawks in the lockdown debate. Last spring, he said the government should run the economy hot and lift restrictions to encourage growth. It follows that senior Tories believe his appointment could tip the inner cabinet balance on COVID decisions in favour of a faster easing and fewer restrictions. That's the take from Katie Balls. Camilla Tomini in The Telegraph spoke to a source who went further than that. Um, so the source told Camilla Tomini, he's a real lockdown sceptic. He's convinced that in a few years' time, with the economic costs so high, everyone will be thinking, why the hell did we do that? The tilt in the cabinet has just shifted quite considerably. So this is someone who thinks not only do we want to avoid restrictions now, but we should never have had a lockdown last winter. Now, virtually all epidemiologists think this is a terrible argument. It was tried in Sweden where they didn't have a lockdown. What it ended up having was much more deaths than comparable countries and their neighbours and such a, you know, a bigger hit to, to the economy. So this is bad science. It's bad policy. Will it, though, affect, I suppose, our COVID response at this point in time? Now everyone really admits we don't want to have lockdowns. Or will this change in tone have some effect. Let's take a look at his first intervention as health secretary, which was this afternoon in the House of Commons. Now, I spent my first day as health secretary just yesterday looking at the data and testing it to the limit. Whilst we decided not to bring forward step four, we see no reason to go beyond the 19th of July. Yeah. Because in truth, no date we choose comes with zero risk for COVID. We know we cannot simply eliminate it. We have to learn to live with it. 
We also know that people and businesses need certainty, so we want every step to be irreversible. And make no mistake, Mr Deputy Speaker, the restrictions on our freedoms, they must come to an end. We owe it to the British people who have sacrificed so much to restore their freedoms as quickly as we possibly can and not to wait a moment longer than we need to. I mean, in a way, no one can disagree with that. Why would we want to wait a moment longer than we need to? But there were some elements of that speech which were, I suppose, quite a sharp breach with how Matt Hancock sometimes spoke about this. So what we'd often hear when Matt Hancock was Health Secretary was that we, we're going to work from data, not dates. Sajid Javid is taking the opposite approach, which is to say that dates actually have to be fairly absolute. He was saying businesses need certainty. That means when I say we're going to unlock on the 19th of July, we will unlock on the 19th of July. I, I say unlock. we will remove all restrictions on the 19th of July and we will not be going backwards. So you can see how those are the words of someone who is more sceptical of restrictions than his predecessor. Now, Ash, I want your take on this, specifically on how he will relate to the, the pandemic or how Sajid Javid's appointment could change government policy when it comes to pandemic control. Because from my perspective, he's had views and perspectives which have been thoroughly proven wrong over the past year and a half. At the same time, we are now at a position where kind of everyone agrees we want to ultimately be removing as many restrictions as possible. So maybe having him as health secretary a year ago would have been terrible. But right now, when it comes to the pandemic and issues about lockdowns or otherwise, is it is it almost irrelevant? So this is an interesting one, because Sajid Javid, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, was obviously something um, of a deficit and when Rishi Sunak eventually replaced him, lots of people, including myself, went, well, it's going to be more of the same, if not, um, you know, a bit more pro-austerity. And then Sunak kind of surprised everyone by being a bit more amenable uh, when it came to borrowing and turning on the spending taps. Obviously, lots of that money was um, siphoned off in the form of lucrative public sector contracts for private sector interests. Um, but it was one of the ways in which Sunak was something of a surprise. And I think that Sajid Javid, when you sort of compare him to other figures in the cabinet, he's a lot more rigid, a lot less flexible. So I think when he's saying, you know, I am something of, um, you know, an anti-lockdown voice, I'm going to be hard and absolutist on dates, it's going to be very difficult to get him to shift from that position. Now, it's not quite as disastrous as it would have been to have had a health secretary um, either earlier in the winter or last spring with that point of view that would have resulted in even more deaths uh, than what we have you know tragically had to endure but that would have been completely catastrophic here with the vaccine in play I think it's merely um, troubling right? Because you're not necessarily going to see the same level of disaster as you did um, when you had the virus just running through society um, uninterrupted. And you also had no means by which uh, to protect people from it, apart from uh, lockdown, social distancing, and the kinds of restrictions we've been living with for over a year. So what worries me um, isn't necessarily that we're going to see under Sajid Javid a huge increase in deaths. It's going to be that we see some increase in deaths, a slightly bigger increase in hospitalizations. And while we're still waiting for, um, you know, many young people to be vaccinated, higher rates of long COVID, because you've got a health secretary who is so wedded to the the very letter 
of the dates that he refuses to budge on them one bit. And what we've seen, I think, when it comes to the Delta variant is that there is a need to respond very quickly to new and emerging variants to where it ha they happen to be transmitting initially when they reach this country and someone who's not afraid to say, well, actually, maybe we need some restrictions in these localities. If Sajid Javid's saying, I'm not going to be that guy, well, that is worrying because what that could mean is actually much greater restrictions on all of us and all the things that we like to do much later down the line when people have suffered a lot more in the lead up to that. Mm, I mean, I suppose the thing that I found a little bit worrying about it was that I mean, you would like to think that the health sector, you know, if you, if you think of government sometimes as, you know, people bargaining from their different perspectives and then you come to some compromise. So if there is some trade-off between COVID and the economy, then it kind of makes sense that you've got a chancellor who comes into the room and says, my priority is the economy. And then you've got a health secretary who comes and says, my priority is health. And then they bash it out and come to some sort of compromise. What it seems like at the moment is we're going to have a health secretary going into the room who's like, my priority is business. A chancellor who goes into the room says, my priority is business. And who are the people advocating for our our health. That, that, that's what I'm um, slightly worried about here, even though, as I say, I mean, none of us want to um, go back into a lockdown. We'll talk in more detail later about what the vaccination drive does mean when it comes to all of these questions. For now, though, I do want to move on from the pandemic and talk about, well, everything else, um, because it's a pretty significant time to become health secretary. Um, there are some big decisions coming up. They include um, what will the social care reforms be? Boris Johnson has talked about bringing in a new system to replace the completely failing one that we have. There are some issues about how much that will cost. Boris Johnson, apparently, we're told, um, wants to spend a significant amount of, of money on that to help um, implement the Dilnot reforms, which would have a cap on the amount that you can spend on care. People like Rishi Sunak saying, no way we can afford this. Let's Let's keep with let, let's keep doing care on the cheap as we do now. So Sajid Javid will have a role there. Um, the other issue is obviously how the NHS rebuilds after the pandemic. It's going to be a real critical juncture, I suppose you could say, with the NHS. They're going to have to rebuild, and there is a moment now where you'll have all of the the neoliberals say, "Well, for us to be able to rebuild this, we've got to privatize and sell our stuff. We've got to cut corners so that we can get rid of all of these waiting lists." And then you're going to have other people saying, "If the pandemic has taught us anything." is that we need to properly invest in our in our health ser service. We need to increase the funding of it by a significant degree. I mean, at the moment, I think we spend about 10% on, on the NHS. It's very low compared to other countries. I'd be saying, let's put it up to 11, 12, 13%. Is Sajid Javid the kind of guy who'd be making that argument? Let's stick with the first one. So on care, um, there are two big arguments here or two popular arguments I've seen today as to what role Sajid Javid would have when it comes to whether or not we will properly fund um, care when these reforms come about. Um, probably the dominant argument is Sajid Javid is a fiscal hawk. He'll basically side with Rishi Sunak, which is to say, no, we can't afford um, to have a, a proper, decent social care system. We're going to have to continue doing it on the cheap. The other opposing argument is to say, actually, because he is health secretary, he will end up arguing for a decent social care system. And because he was chancellor, he'll be in a position to win that argument. You can decide which of those you find more plausible. First of all, though, I, I do want to show you a, a, a third possible option. This was from C Camilla Tomini. Um, she suggested, or her source, in fact, suggested he would just kick the can down the road. So Camilla Tomini quoted a former colleague of Javid who said, 
While there is no doubt Sajid will look to do a number of far-reaching reforms, I think he's of the opinion we are at completely the wrong stage of the parliament now to suddenly launch a new social care strategy. He thinks the Tories need another election victory, so they've got another four or five year term to do it properly. Um, so we've got there a health secretary whose priority is business instead of health and a health secretary whose priority is Tories winning the next general election instead of sorting out our dysfunctional care system. Now on to whether or not he'll defend the NHS. Um, what kind of position does he have when it comes to a publicly funded strong NHS? Here again, some serious causes for concern. Chris Smith in The Times writes, Javid made his name as a Thatcherite small state conservative. Twice a year, he rereads Ayn Rand's pay into the power of the individual against an overmighty state. So this is a real ideological neoliberal, someone who's committed back to paring back the reaches of the state. Now, to have someone like that in charge of the NHS, not necessarily what we want to see. Another thing we know about Sajid Javid is that last summer he was hired by JP Morgan as a senior advisor. So this isn't his career before politics, it's his career whilst being an MP. This is potentially worrying because the Mirror have described JP Morgan as a major player in private healthcare. And Zara Sultana, a Labour left MP, summarised well precisely why this should be of concern for us all. So she tweeted, the new health secretary, Sajid Javid, earns £150,000 as an advisor to US bank JP Morgan. JP Morgan say they see the opportunities that lie ahead for private healthcare. The ultimate opportunity for private healthcare is NHS privatisation. The NHS isn't safe with the Tories. Now, that quote about seeing opportunities in healthcare is from the JP Morgan website. So they're very clear about this. On this issue of Sajid Javid's relationship to the NHS, his broader politics and what that will mean for his role, Ash, how worried do you think we should be? Uh, I mean, I was just I was just listening to you um, describe the fact that you've got a sitting MP, a former chancellor and now a present health secretary who has his little, you know, job on the side for a bit of pin money is advising JP Morgan. And you've just got to laugh at that point, don't you? Um, you know, Britain has an image of itself of not only being above such, you know, horrible, tawdry things like corruption, which only happen in those brown people countries, don't you know? Um, but, you know, we're, we're the home of the mother of parliaments. You know, we invented this constitutionalism game, playing fair and by the rules. And then you have a look at the rules and they just may as well not fucking exist. They just may as well not exist. It's such a clear conflict of interest to have, um, you know, a former chancellor um being paid by a huge investment bank and also part of that money isn't actually for the advice that he gives it's also in the hope uh that he's going to make his way back into power and back into cabinet at some point and then you've got jp morgan uh with a direct ear to the heart of government um it turns out you can put a price on power it's 150 grand a year um so that was the thing that that I was thinking uh, while listening to that, it just reminded me of how disingenuous a lot of the brouhaha around the Lex Greensill scandal was. Because if people wanted this kind of thing not to happen, the rules would be different. 
and they're drafted this way for a reason. But as for as for how worried we should be about Sajid Javid being um, health secretary, I would say very. I would say very. Um, he is an ideological neoliberal and Thatcherite. As you said, he rereads uh, Ayn Rand twice a year. I think when you also look at what he said before in terms of how, how, what he thinks an ideal state and should be like, how it should be run, he always was that bit more distant even from the kind of, you know, Dominic Cummings' vision where you have, you know, high spend, low tax, uh, deregulate. He wants, you know, low spend, low tax overall. Um, that's what he thinks the most efficient and ideal kinds of state is. And when you look at the kinds of problems this country is facing, um, the two major ones are, of course, climate change and then, you know, elderly care. Um, those are two things which cannot be fixed without huge amounts of money being poured into them. Uh, the, when he was at Chancellor of the Exchequer, some of the money which was earmarked for climate change was absolutely insulting. It was, you know, risible, quite frankly. And I think now as Health Secretary, you're going to see lots of, you know, big trumpeted announcements of, you know, spending and cash, which ultimately are tiny drops in the ocean uh, for what it needs that needs to be done to reform our healthcare service. I wonder what's going to happen, though, and this is a, a kind of side point, is that one of the things that Matt Hancock was working on was a reversal of some aspects of the Lansley reforms of the NHS to try and uh, put more powers back in the hands of the health secretary. So I wonder if that's something uh, that Sajid Javid will continue with, just from a purely uh, you know, governance perspective, or if he's quite happy seeing the NHS uh, balkanized, unable to you know, coordinate effectively. Um, the, though it was those Lansley reforms which in part made us so vulnerable to the pandemic in the first place. I've read a few profiles of Sajid Javid today because obviously, you know, all the newspapers are, are doing them. And the thing that's actually stood out most to me is none of them mention health. Like the guy doesn't seem to have expressed <laughs> any opinions about health care or social care before. You know, everything about him is he's interested in finance capital. He's interested in cutting the deficit. He's interested in lowering taxes. I haven't read anywhere where it seems like, oh, this is a guy who has a passion for healthcare. I, I haven't read that anywhere. And uh, to be honest, I've, I do find that quite worrying. Why not put someone in charge of the NHS who knows what they're talking about? You know, someone who, who used to work in the NHS, someone who has a passion for this kind of stuff. You've put in there someone who, you know, it, it just seems like you've just thrown them in a random job because Boris Johnson wanted to bring him back onto the front bench. In terms of why he did come back onto the front bench. Let's go to one commentary on his appointment that we, we couldn't really ignore. It's Dominic Cummings. And he tweeted um, after the announcement. So Carrie appoints Sarge. Note, if I hadn't tricked the Prime Minister into firing Sajid, we'd have had a treasury with a useless Secretary of State and special advisors, no furlough scheme, total chaos instead of a joint number 10, number 11 team, which was a big success. Sajid equals bog standard equals chasing headlines plus failing equals awful for the NHS. Need hashtag regime change. Um, he's got this very boomer energy doing a hashtag regime. Like, that's not a hashtag, but anyway. Ash, how seriously do you think we should take um, that commentary from Dominic Cummings? I suppose he's saying the only reason he was pointed was because he's an ally of Carrie Simons, who's obviously an enemy of, of Dominic Cummings, but also he's saying this guy is just useless. When Dominic Cummings is talking about regime change, what who is he talking about? He's talking about Michael Gove and he's talking about Rishi Sunak, all right? So while he might have some juicy 
tidbits. Um, and of course, he had a lot of juicy tidbits about uh, Matt Hancock when he was at that select committee and all but saying that he demanded 15 times to have the health secretary fired out of a cannon from the top of the Palace of Westminster. Um, while he, he's able to uh, add color and detail uh, to lots of things that perhaps we already knew about some of the major figures of government. I think that the fundamental aspects of his analysis of, you know, why is Sunak better than Sajid Javid? It's motivated by factionalism and sort of petty empire building. I don't think it's particularly um, astute or accurate, but something which is important here, and this goes back to answering your question, Michael, well, why has this guy who has never articulated even the slightest bit of interest in healthcare suddenly found himself as health secretary, you know, while we're still in a pandemic and we're facing these huge existential health crises as a nation, why not promote somebody who's already a junior minister, who's familiar with the pandemic response? Well, it's because if you're Boris Johnson and you've essentially handed over a big scalp to your ex-babes Dominic Cummings, you've then got to signal, but you don't really win. And so that's why you bring someone back who was forced out by your ex-advisor. That's what I think the calculation was. And I do think that it was that petty. All basically point scoring and political management, right? Not any interest in, in 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 our collective health. But I suppose we wouldn't have expected any more from Boris Johnson. Um, we're going to move on from Sadid Javid for now. I'm sure we'll be coming back to him on many a future show. Um, for now, we're going to talk about the fallout from Matt Hancock's resignation. It is still a political event which is having enormous reverberations. Matt Hancock's resignation was not the result of any decision by Boris Johnson. In fact, the Prime Minister had encouraged him to stay, and the initial defences of Matt Hancock have left the government open to accusations that they do believe there is one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. You might think that in most jobs, if you've broken the rules that you yourself have set, you'd be fired. Not so if you are in Boris Johnson's cabinet. You get to decide yourself whether or not you will leave. Now, the argument that the government you know, do does seem to believe there is one rule for everyone else and one rule for them was put powerfully by Trevor Phillips on Sky on Sunday. He was speaking to Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis. Mr. Lewis, I, I wouldn't normally do something like this, but um, I want to put a private, personal question, I guess, in a way to you. Over the past two days, every cabinet minister, including you, has come out to essentially defend the Prime Minister and Matt Hancock. The pictures that we saw were of an encounter on May the 6th. On May the 11th, my family buried my daughter, uh, who had died not of COVID, but during the lockdown. 300 of our family and friends turned up online, but most of them were not allowed to be at the graveside, even though it was in the open air, because of the rule of 30, because of the instruction by Mr. Hancock. Now, the next time one of you tells me what to do in my private life, explain to me why I shouldn't just tell you where to get off. Well, I, I absolutely accept and understand the frustration, even the anger that people have, having been through the situations they've been through. Look, as you say, Trevor, people across the country, I've lost friends whose funerals I've not been able to go to over the last period. That is such a tragic 
situation for any of us to be in. And that's, I have to say, why it's so important. All of us do what we can to keep ourselves, our families, our friends, our wider community safe. It's also why that what Matt did was wrong. He, he, he acknowledged that. It's why he apologised immediately for his behaviour and acknowledged what he did was wrong. And it's also why he's taken the decision that his position was untenable and distracting from the wider work that we've all got to do to move forward in the pandemic and out of the pandemic. There's, there's no getting away from that. And I think that's why Matt ultimately made a decision he did. As I say, I think in doing that, he's put his family and indeed all of us across the UK first because he wants to focus, as the PM does, as we all do, to be on getting out of this pandemic in the best possible way and as quickly as we can. And that was a really extraordinary clip. I mean, Trevor Phillips there had put forward... You know, a really upsetting, really moving story. He's saying very recently his daughter was, it was his daughter's funeral. By the way, she passed away um, from anorexia. That was after struggling for two decades with an eating disorder. Um, I don't know exactly whether or not Trevor Phillips relates that to the lockdown, but I think the fact he sort of mentioned that was during lockdown seems um, that he potentially, he does. And Brandon Lewis didn't even recognize that. He didn't say my condolences. He didn't recognize that this 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 incredibly sad story had just been revealed to him and he didn't show any solidarity. He just gave this completely boilerplate answer, which is to say, oh, I understand why some people are annoyed. I understand why some people are angry. I've also missed funerals. Like it was such an incredibly inappropriate answer from someone who clearly has no emotional intelligence. What the clip did show as well is, I mean, why Matt Hancock had to go. Imagine if Brandon Lewis, like emotional fool that he seems to be, was put out to defend Matt Hancock keeping his job. That would have been a nightmare for the government. One more thing to mention about that clip is it ended, the boilerplate answer ended with that Matt Hancock has put his family first by resigning and leaving his wife and kids to live with his mistress, which is slightly odd. Um, Ash, I, I want to know what, what you make of of that interview, but also what it says about Boris Johnson, that he was, he was ready to defend Matt Hancock. So if Boris Johnson had had his way, this would have just been Dominic Cummings, Barnard Castle, Mark II. Matt Hancock did what any good man would do, which is snog his mistress in his office and then leave his wife and kids. Look, I think you had it bang on when you identified the fundamental lack of empathy and humanity in Brandon Lewis's response. Because when somebody is telling you, I lost my daughter during this pandemic, the response cannot be, well, I've also lost friends. These two things are not equivalents. A parent burying their child and you not attending the funeral of a friend are just completely different orders of magnitude. It's just different kinds of grief. You just can't, you just can't do that. The decent way to address that question is go, my condolences. I'm so sorry. That pain that you feel has been echoed across the country. And that's why Matt Hancock staying in place was untenable. I think sometimes the media training of politicians where like, give an answer, give as much detail as possible and it'll make you look authoritative and like you're not ducking it. It's just actually reeks in some some settings as just disingenuous and slimy and inhumane and that's how Brandon Lewis comes across there but moving on to well why is it Boris Johnson didn't sack Hancock right away because really it should be a no-brainer that if you as a powerful politician are having an affair with somebody who is receiving public money that you should sack that person but if you yourself have done that as a politician like Boris Johnson has, how are you going to sack anybody else for it? Really, you should be like, oh, well, like, what can you say? You can say nothing. So I think that was the first 
problem, which is how can Boris Johnson sack somebody for doing exactly what he's done in the past? He can't. The second thing is the instinct with this government is no resignations, no sackings unless or until you've done something to upset me or my now wife personally, or if you're a useful fall guy and a patsy. And I think at this point, Matt Hancock didn't really fit either of those two models. The problem is that the story just looked like it was going to go on and on. So you had the stills and then you had the video with the ask grab. Then what you're going to have is potentially a, a police investigation. Then after that, people are going to be looking into what are the circumstances of her having been hired in the first place? What kind of access did she have to high level confidential meetings with civil servants or in Downing Street? What kind of say did she have over decisions within the Department of Health? Or what kind of influence did she have where she or her clients, um, the clients of the lobbying firm uh, for which she is a director, um, stood to benefit. So it's something which I think was just not going to be contained. It wasn't a case of this is a scandal, it will happen, it will blow up, you sit tight, you weather it. I think it was going to roll on and on and on. And I think once that became clear, um, it was obvious to Boris Johnson that he couldn't spend the political capital on this. And also perhaps he didn't like Matt Hancock enough to do so, right? We know that he thinks he's fucking useless. Um, so yeah, that's why I think he didn't and why he eventually did. Mm, I mean, there was clearly a thing with Dominic Cummings whereby I suppose Dominic Cummings didn't want to go, but also Boris Johnson seemed to think he was completely dependent on him, that he couldn't really function in government without his chief adv chief advisor because Boris Johnson doesn't actually like doing any any work. Mm. And it seems he didn't feel the same way about Matt Hancock. What does seem to be clear, though, is that, you know, a cynic in these situations would say, yes, Matt Hancock's resigned, but he's only resigned so that he can return to frontline politics in three months' time. This isn't really going to be, you know, a real consequence for the guy. This is media management, and he can come in into an, an equally senior role in the near future, even though he's done something which so many people in the public find find so so offensive, like as, as, as Trevor Phillips put there. Um, but, um, I mean, you don't need to be a cynic to think that because actually Boris Johnson has been fairly explicit that that is what is going to happen in this particular circumstance. So in the letter um, Boris Johnson sent to Matt Hancock accepting his resignation, he included the following. You should leave office very proud of what you have achieved, not just in tackling the pandemic, but even before COVID-19. You should be immensely proud of your service. I am grateful for your support and believe that your contribution to public service is far from over. So I mean, that's really strange, isn't it, Ash? I mean, Boris Johnson is explicitly saying, yeah, okay, yeah, you can re resign now, fine, go for it. I'll just appoint you in, in six months' time. Well, yeah, that is the, it's not even subtext, is it? It's just text. It's very explicit, yeah. It's just regular, regular text. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's what's what's in there. It's I don't like you enough to take the slingers and arrows now, but yeah, you're an ally. You can come back. That's what I want, you know. And, and Matt Hancock isn't an astonishingly talented politician. All right, I don't. <laughs> you don't look at him and you go, you know, well, there goes a big beast. Um, he's somebody who. Uh, has always had, I think, this aura of of pathetic thirst around him. That was just the thing which I would think when I saw him on TV. I was like, even before this stuff about Gina Colodangelo came out, you're just like, Oof, 
that man is starving. Um, but I think that, you know, excellence and diligence aren't things that Boris Johnson looks for in a cabinet minister. I think it's personal loyalty and a willingness to take the flack when Boris Johnson doesn't want to um, sully his own optimistic image. And that's why we'd often see Matt Hancock, uh, you know, breaking the bad news and Boris Johnson going, I don't want to take this one. Um, to lots of tricky press conferences that Matt Hancock was kind of shunted in front of the cameras for. Um, you ca- you have to reward that kind of loyalty or like, lack of dignity, whatever way you want to put it. Those were probably the two key talents of Matt Hancock in the job, wasn't it? I mean, from Boris Johnson's perspective, which was he was willing to take the flack for him, go out in front of the cameras and take whatever um, criticisms the, the media were throwing at that point in time and also lie on his behalf. If you're Boris Johnson, it's really handy to have ministers who have no moral qualms or whatsoever about saying things that everyone categorically can see are untrue. Because if that's what you need, Matt Hancock will do it. He is your guy. <laughs> We are going to go on to one more Matt Hancock story. Again, potentially relating to his honesty. You can read into it what you want. We learned some more details over the weekend about the more personal consequences of the sun splashing a photo of Matt Hancock snogging his aide. Part of that is that Hancock, as well as leaving his job, has left his family. The Sunday Times report that Hancock told his wife he was leaving her on Thursday evening immediately after he learnt his affair was about to be exposed. He even woke up their youngest child, aged eight, to break the news. Martha Hancock had had no idea her husband was cheating on her with his university friend and had considered their marriage happy and stable. Now, Matt Hancock left his wife to be with his now former aide, who also left her husband over the weekend. Both parties had three children. Um, Now, sources quoted in the papers all agree that this is now a serious relationship between Matt Hancock and Gina Colodangelo. So a friend is quoted in the Mail on Sunday describing them as a, quote, love match. Um, However, there are conflicting accounts as to how long they've been together. So according to the Sunday Times, insiders believe the affair had been going on for months by the time the covert video was recorded on May the 6th. That has been um, contradicted in the mail on Sunday. They quoted friends who said they'd only been seeing each other for six weeks. Now, the timing here matters not just for the sake of, you know, it's, it's interesting how long have they been together, how long has the affair been going on, but it also has some quite serious political ramifications because if they've been together for a long time, then it's quite possible that when Matt Hancock appointed Colodangelo to be an executive, a non executive director of the Department of Health, they were already in a relationship. If they've only been together for six weeks, then obviously, you know, that wouldn't be the case. They were already close friends. So in any case, it probably should have been declared. But it's obviously clearly more serious if they are in a romantic relationship and it was not declared. I mean, it's going to be difficult for us here and now to decide which one is true. You might think, though, that if you have left your wife and kids in the case of Matt Hancock or left your husband and kids in the case of Colodangelo, that would be a surprising thing to do if you've only been together for six weeks. So it's potentially more plausible that they have been together for a long time, which would raise the question of were they in a relationship when she was appointed to this well-paid and very significant role. 
Worth also saying that in any case, the simple fact Matt Hancock has left his wife to set up a life with his former aide has apparently annoyed local conservatives so much um, that insiders believe he could get deselected by West Suffolk members before the next general election. That was in the Times. To be honest, I'll believe that when I see it. Ash, I want your take on this because some people might think, oh, you guys, you're dabbling in gossip. Why are you talking about Matt Hancock leaving his family? Mm. On many levels, though, the relationship between Matt Hancock and Colodangelo and you know how serious it was, how long it has lasted, does have some serious political ramifications, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does. And the first thing that I want to say is that people's personal lives are messy. All right. None of us would like it if you went digging through decisions we've made and, you know, late night texts we've sent. Something embarrassing would be in there. All right. People are disgusting. That's just the way of the world. And so this isn't coming from a perspective of saying having an affair alone should disqualify you from high office because I don't think that. But what I do think is the really critical thing here is did the nature of their relationship mean that there wasn't the correct oversight in hiring her in the first place because she had her parliamentary pass not through uh, Matt Hancock but through Lord Bethel through somebody else there was no record of her appointment back in March and then also you've got this question of what her role was as a non-executive board member at the Department of Health it was to monitor and to uh, scrutinize what was going on in the department that and that includes Matt Hancock uh, himself so one that means that at any point them having an affair means that she cannot be trusted to do the job that she is paid with taxpayers money to do and two if the affair was going on before she was hired and also before she uh, had her role uh, as an unpaid advisor to the Department of Health, well, then it means that there was deceit, that there was attempts to conceal the true nature uh, of the hiring and why it might have been that Matt Hancock would have wanted her around. And also it would have concealed the fact that she cannot do, cannot be trusted to do the jobs that she's brought in specifically to do. And then you've also got this business of, you know, chumocracy, or as I just like to call it, corruption uh, more generally, that you can get these lucrative contracts if you've simply got the mobile phone number of Matt Hancock, or if you used to like run a pub that he liked to go to. Gina Colodangelo's case, it's, well, maybe he fancied me since university. And here I am, I'm a director uh, at, what's it, Luther Pendragon? Is that the lobbying firm? Who represents present amongst their clients uh, British Airways and Accenture, both who won contracts with the Department of Health during the pandemic. Is this again, uh, somebody who's got the right kind of relationship, who's in the personal good books of the health secretary, getting unfettered and improper access in order to essentially squeeze a government department of taxpayer money so it can be funneled away to private interests, right? And that's why the affair matters. It's not just about, you know, whether or not you consider somebody who has an affair beyond the pale. It's actually about what is concealed within that whole tawdry cloud. In terms of what Loof of Pendragon do, the Guardian, um, in their description, say they, they specialize in crisis and reputation management. Um, so wow. presumably she'll have a lot of, of so, work to do over do the next couple of days. Do you think she's going to invoice him for it? 
Can you invoice for a problem you've caused? I suppose actually, I mean, that's, that's I do all how the time. politics works. That's how politics <laughs> works normally. You cause a problem and then you tell the public that you can fix it. So interesting. She should, I mean, if she was very good at her job, she would have said, check your office for CCTV before um, you cop off with any of your colleagues in the middle can of the I, pandemic. Can I just say one thing, which is, um, I know I've just said that the really important things here are to do with how was she hired? Where has the money gone? Where was the oversight? But can you just give me just one little gossipy moment for a second? Because what I can, yes. struck me was that the husband of Gina Colodangelo was helping her put her bags in the car. And one of the things that you didn't see, I also think that it was really bad for photographers to be outside the family homes, but seeing as they was there and I saw, um, I did also come to some opinions, um, that you didn't see, you know, the clothes being dumped out of the bedroom window, which is personally what I would have done. If I had just found out that not only had I been cheated on, that it was with Matt Hancock, the clothes would be going out the window. You'd be hearing Khalees caught out there being played at ear-splitting volume. You know, I would want the press to know that, to paraphrase Richard Nixon, I am not a cook. I don't know. I thought maybe it looked, made him look like a gentleman and maybe that's going to make it easier to find his next <laughs> wife. That's, I, I thought maybe he was thinking two steps ahead. You know, probably a very intelligent, this is Oliver Bonas man, but he's not called Oliver Bonas. He's called Oliver. I don't know who the Bonas is. Um, we're going to go on to um, a story about that CCTV camera. Um, national security implications. How did an image of Matt Hancock kissing an aide in his own office find its way to the front page of the Sun newspaper? Now, it's a crucial question for a number of reasons. Evidence of infidelity on the part of politicians, conservers, compromat can make them liable to blackmail. We might think that if you've got CCTV cameras that are taking pictures of ministers doing all sorts of embarrassing things, what could that be used for and who could use it? Affairs or otherwise, compromat or otherwise, we might think that there being recording devices in minister's office is potentially dangerous because classified information is being discussed. What else is, is being recorded and, and is, is there more sensitive information which is being passed on? I mean, I would say that they could be leaking sensitive advice about who's getting contracts in the Department for Health, but it seems that none of that's that sensitive. You can just ask and he'll tell you all on WhatsApp anyway. But you can imagine hypothetically, if you had a more upstanding government, that could be a problem. Finally, it potentially raises questions about the press. Now, the splash was on the front page of The Sun. That's, of course, owned by Rupert Murdoch. And the article, the investigation itself, was written by Harry Cole, who is the ex-boyfriend of the Prime Minister's wife. Right? So this is all, these are some real close connections here. And you might question whether it's fine that the ex boyfriend of the prime minister's wife and a billionaire newspaper owner seem to have more control over whether or not ministers resign than, well, essentially anyone else. This is someone who oversaw 150,000 deaths. He managed to keep his job, even though he lied about a bunch of things, including testing, going into care homes and the number of tests that would be doing that were being done every, every day. He kept his job then. But the thing that made him lose it was an image on the front page of the sun. Now, all of this means it is pretty relevant as to what were the sequence of events by which this image found its way onto the front page of the sun. And there have been some pretty explosive answers proposed, in particular by allies of 
Matt Hancock. Now, they have suggested to various newspapers that he was a victim of a hit job by Number 10 or even a spying operation by China. And the reason they've been purporting that it could be something along these lines is that Matt Hancock had no idea there was CCTV in his office. Now, that meant it was speculated, including in the Times, that the images had been caught by a covert small camera that had been placed in a light fixture. So this would be very James Bond-esque, really, if it were the case. However, um, at least the question of how the camera found its way to be there seems to be a bit more mundane. It doesn't seem like it was um, the Chinese or the Russians fitting, or Boris Johnson himself, fitting a tiny CCTV camera into a light. And that's because images printed in the Mail on Sunday show there was a CCTV camera in Hancock's office in 2017 when he moved in. So it seems that Matt Hancock is maybe just not a very observant person. Very interesting. I mean, it's I, I kind of would have preferred it to have been planted in a light by someone, but at least from this Mail story, it seems plausible that there was a CCTV camera already there. The Mail also um, had some details of how it came to pass that footage recorded on that CCTV camera ended up on the front page of a tabloid newspaper. And they say, so the Mail on Sunday say it was recorded by a member of staff at the department who then contacted a prominent lockdown skeptic to try and get the images placed in a newspaper. So the Mail say we don't know precisely how the sun got it, but what we have seen is a series of messages to a prominent lockdown skeptic, which shows there was someone, an ordinary member of staff in the Department of Health, who wanted to get this story out to damage Matt Hancock. Let's go um, to some of the reportage in the Mail on Sunday. So they write, in a series of Instagram messages seen by this newspaper, the whistleblower says they need to be very careful with the information I'm about to share. They add, I have some very damning CCTV footage of someone that has been recently classed as effing hopeless. Now, that message was sent on the 17th of June, so that was the day after Dominic Cummings released the text messages which showed Boris Johnson had called Hancock hopeless. They also go on, the mail goes on to say, on June the 19th, the whistleblower explains more about the footage, writing, I really need to be careful with this, but it involves him in a very compromising position with someone who isn't his wife last month. Later they reveal, I have the full video, it's now been deleted off the system as it's over 30 days in a separate message, the whistleblower admits working for the Department of Health. Finally, um, the Daily Mail report, having sent a grab image from the video to the anti-lockdown figure, the whistleblower discussed a potential payment, but said they were not looking for a large amount. Asked for further material, they conclude, I really don't feel comfortable sending any more than I already have at the moment. I'm assuming what's happened here is that there is a prominent lockdown skeptic who is in contact with this journalist from the, the Mail on Sunday. And he says, look, it, you know, it wasn't me that leaked this image to the Sun, but I can tell that there was someone who worked in the Department of Health who was trying to find a way to get this placed in a newspaper. And I know that because I was one of the people he reached out to. The Mail on Sunday say they've seen the messages so they can vouch that this did happen and there was um, someone in the Department of Health who was trying to get out these images, presumably because they were contacting a, a lockdown sceptic because they thought that Matt Hancock had been too pro-lockdown, too pro-restrictions, and now the fact that he had broken them would be a way to get rid of him or at least to expose his 
hypocrisy. Um, Ash, I want your take on this. Do you think this story adds up? Do you think that this was just a disgruntled staff member who didn't have any particular connection to any of Matt Hancock's rivals, but just was upset or annoyed at Matt Hancock for being pro-coronavirus restrictions, and so of their own accord, decided to leak this footage to national newspapers? I think it's plausible, but then again, it's also plausible that there is a lot more access, high-level access, to the CCTV footage in and around ministers' offices. And it's politically useful to make sure that that's on hand should any of those ministers step out of line. I want to be careful because I don't want to be out here saying completely wild stuff and, you know, I've got absolutely no justification for it whatsoever. But thinking about how political parties and operations work, you don't have um, a machine which is powered by raging egos and narcissists working simply because of goodwill. One way in which whips work is by, you know, carrots and sticks. Carrots of, well, you know, if you play ball, you might get this nice little promotion at some point down the line. The stick is remember all this shit that you've done. And so I think that there must be quite a lot of ways in which to access uh, CCTV footage, documentation, uh, you know, records, which mean that you've got a sort of sizable stash of wrongdoing to make sure that, you know, MPs, junior ministers, senior ministers all stay in line. And how it is they access it, I don't know. I just don't think that anybody who works at the Department of Health, particularly if there's somebody who's got access to CCTV footage, would risk their jobs like that unless they were of a level of seniority, which meant that they were kind of comfortable doing so because they would enjoy some kind of protection. It is weird. The story is really weird because for this argument to work, you know, you don't just have to work in an office to see how many people get to see CCTV. So this is someone who was able to go into the CCTV room, scroll back, find the the relevant part, and then they think, you know, potentially filmed it on, on their camera phone. Now, really, you have to be in the security team to do that. And is the security team going to be the team who knows that Matt Hancock is copping off with one of his aides? Because as you know, you know, the way that security cameras work is you're not looking at all the cameras at the same time. The cameras are essentially there so that if there was an incident, you can scroll back and see who it was who who left the room with the computer or whatever. It's nearly always retrospective. There will be some sort of live monitoring, but you'll have one person looking at loads and loads of screens and it'll be flicking between the screens. So the idea that a security guard with no personal connection to these politicians would would know this is somewhat implausible. The idea that there'd be anyone, you know, just a disgruntled member of staff who would have found access to the CCTV, and you know, also, a disgruntled member of staff who does have a personal connection because maybe they're a junior advisor or whatever, how would they have got the image of the CCTV? And also just something that I want to say very quickly, do you think that Matt Hancock is the only one who's up to that kind of business? Like, do you? Because I obviously cannot put names to any of this stuff because I don't want to get sued. I don't have any assets to my name, but you know, I don't want to, I don't know, I don't want to lose my trainers or something. Um, but, but in terms of open secrets in Westminster, right? These are not people who are known for their discretion or good judgment. All right. They're often very mediocre personalities who are completely high on their own sense of self-importance, self-regard, the attention and the power and all of that. And it makes them do stupid things like teenagers because they're like, oh, my God, I am just pure 
libido right now. So I've heard about a senior politician who was overheard by their colleagues having sex in a bathroom. Um, you know, I've heard of another politician who probably uh, should know better, but has sort of secretly moved out uh, from the house they shared with their spouse uh, and has now, you know, shacked up with somebody, uh, you know, a bit younger and a bit more attractive, despite being still married uh, to the spouse that they were living with. Um, these are things which everybody knows. And I doubt that any one of these people would be so diligent as to never, ever do anything anywhere near an office or a bit of the parliamentary estate where there's CCTV. All right. There's all sorts of stuff on camera, all sorts of stuff on camera. So why was this the bit of footage, which has made it out? That's what I think. And I just think that, you know, the idea that there is some, you know, fairly low down security guard, who's just really angry about lockdowns. And so that's the one thing that he's going to go for. It just doesn't stack up. I take your arguments, you know, it's, it's helpful for, you know, a whip, for example, to have some some juice on ministers so they might collect these images or whatever, and there will be other people who've been filmed doing this kind of thing. But everyone seems to agree that Matt Hancock is the only minister who had a CCTV camera in his office. It was also, you know, visible to everyone, but Matt Hancock didn't notice it, and he's been in that office for years. Like, it's really, really odd. I want to go to a quote um, from Sajid Javid. And this was in the Times because he's obviously now moved into that office. So Javid said, I haven't disabled the camera that you're talking about, but it has been disabled by the department. It's just common sense. I don't think as a general rule, there should be cameras in the Secretary of State's office. I've never known that in the other five departments that I've run. And I'm not really sure why there was one here, but I'm sure there will be more to this as the whole incident is investigated. So they're saying, yeah, there, there was a CTV camera there since this Matt Hancock video was revealed they've turned it off apparently they've sort of taped it with black masking tape now in case that the you know just to double check that it's off but that matt hancock didn't notice it beforehand when it's clearly visible is just really odd doesn't really stack up robert peston actually from itv um did a very interesting tweet today he was expressing surprise at the apparent decision by the government not to investigate the leak. If there's anything more suspicious than the, the series of events we've seen, it's that the government doesn't seem to want to know what actually happened, or at least doesn't want to publicly um, investigate what has happened. So Peston tweets, it's hard to think of a bigger security breach than the leaking of the Matt Hancock snog film. <laughs> oh God, the Matt Hancock snog film. <laughs> and yet Downing Street is saying that an internal Department of Health inquiry is all they'll be, and there is implication they'll never say what happened, even if they find out smells very rum. I mean, he's right, isn't it? You know, th there's clearly a security breach. The, the story doesn't quite stack up, but no one wants to work out what's happened. And it seems actually that even Matt Hancock doesn't really. I mean, maybe they've got more dirt on him. So he, I suppose he wants to be in Boris Johnson's good books. And he's probably a bit like, ah, oh, you got me. Well played. I don't want to cause any more of a fuss because I don't want to upset Boris Johnson because ultimately he's going to give me another job in six months time. Boris Johnson doesn't want, you know, whatever's happened to be, um, uncovered. I mean, he's obviously very close to Rupert Murdoch, potentially the son or implicate, you know, that, as I say, it's very difficult to, to work out what has happened here. But the fact that the government doesn't want to investigate it is pretty goddamn suspicious. I, I want your final thoughts on this issue, Ash. I mean, in a way, we're, we're being very speculative here, because we, we don't have the information. But it does seem like this is an issue where all of the people actually who have power here don't want a definitive account of what happened to to come out. Okay, so 
charitable reading would be they don't want to make a big deal over how did the images see the light of day because you know they caught him red-handed and it's better for you know the government to just move on right that's the most generous reading of that um but but the less generous reading of it is that well why would you want to find out exactly how those images were captured how they were obtained and how they eventually made it out of Whitehall um, because actually if you're able to capture those kinds of images and use them for political assassinations well that might come in handy for you one day so why would you want to close off that tap well it also might be that you think if you don't you know agree to cover it up then ultimately there's a video of you that will come out so it's, is it that Boris Johnson wants to use similar footage in the future or is it completely speculative? If, it, if this was sort of like a deal between a newspaper editor and a private investigator or whatever, this is all highly speculative, that you wouldn't want to out them for that in case they had something on you. You know, it could be that in, instead of politicians thinking we can take advantage of this situation, it's politicians who are too scared to uncover the actual situation because they're, they're, they're worried that someone else ultimately has power over them too. I think that there's just all sorts of dirt around, all right? Because like I said, I just don't think that the kinds of people who go into politics are actually by their nature discreet and have got good judgment, all right? Raging narcissists, um, you know, that's who occupies SW1. But I mean, really, of all the kinds of erotic, romantic, sensual places that you want to get it on, the Department of Health building with that carpet? I don't know, Michael, how much snogging have you done in the Navarra office? Uh, not much in the Navarra office, but I will say that where I would choose to snog someone would often just be a matter of convenience. So if I was chirpsing someone in the Navarra office, I'm sure I would have made out with them there. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I just want to know. This, is, this I, is the one part of the story that I think makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just kind of, don't you find it suspicious that he already had it labelled a kiss door? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was called the kiss door. <laughs> Call it, it that. What do you the camera. Yeah, what do you expect? All right, let's put let's we're getting too speculative. We're going to come back to this hopefully when there are some more details known. But I think our conclusion is the official story does not quite stack up here. All right, let's end there. If you are a supporter of Navarra Media, thank you so much. You know you make all of this possible. If not, please go to navarramedia.com forward slash support and consider donating the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. We really do appreciate it. It makes all of this possible and um, we'll be back on wednesday at 7 p.m for now you've been watching tisky sour on navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support